Today on Blue 58, Packers fans spent a lot of time this offseason talking about whether or not this was going to be a rebuilding year. I think it's time to revisit that question with an eye on the future. Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of thepowersweep.com. I am your host, John Meerdink, and I am happy to be with you here for another episode. We're at roughly the midway point of the season. I've joked before how it's supremely inconvenient that the Packers and the rest of the league are on a 17-game schedule now, which means that the schedule doesn't divide neatly into eight-game chunks for first half and second half, or nice quarters for four games. But we're roughly at the midway point. We're past week nine, which means we're past the the tipping point of the season. Packers are into the back half of their schedule. And I think it's time to revisit a question that we talked about a lot in the offseason. Are the Packers rebuilding or not? I think it's worthwhile to go back and talk about things that we've talked about before. I think there's pressure in sports media to always be new or current or talking about what the current subject is right now. That has its place, but I think there are times you want to take a second and pause and take stock of, you know, what we think now versus what we thought back then. So are the Packers rebuilding? I have seen this debate flare up again. We had a small version of this conversation in the Power Sweeps Discord server, and you can join that by heading to patreon.com slash thepowersweep and becoming a supporter at any level or by supporting us on Substack, thepowersweep.substack.com. You get the same benefits, both spots, just whichever you prefer. Anyway, we were talking about whether or not the Packers are rebuilding. My answer right up front is I don't think it really matters if they are or not, but I think there's more to this question than just yes or no, because there are implications either way. So first, are the Packers rebuilding or not? That depends on what you think a rebuild actually is. One of my favorite hobby horse subjects is team life cycles. We talk about it a lot. A lot of your success against a given opponent or their success against you has to do with where you are in your team life cycle. Are you building up? Are you tearing down? Are you near your peak as a team? Are you healthy? Are you not healthy? All these little, well, all these big cycles and all these little micro cycles within that They matter a lot. And the question, as it pertains to team building, that that really matters each and every year, is are you really ready to go for a Super Bowl or not? There are far fewer teams than we are led to believe that have a realistic shot of winning a Super Bowl in a given year. I'd put the number, people might push back on this, I would put it around five to eight teams that can realistically win a Super Bowl in an MVP year. I've always said, well, maybe not always, but since we've gotten more granular about this question over the past few years, I've argued that to win a Super Bowl, you need to have a quarterback capable of playing at an MVP level. You need to have a good supporting cast around him. And then you need to have a defense that is not going to actively lose things for you. I think the the defense wins championship thing is probably a little overdone. May not really be true of the modern NFL anymore. I don't know if you can really build for defense, but you need to have a defense that is not going to actively make your team worse. This equation sounds pretty simple, but obviously a lot goes into that. A lot can go wrong within the course of building that roster. Even in 2022, I think maybe if his thumb doesn't get injured, a couple other things break the Packers' way. Aaron Rodgers still probably was capable of, of, of playing at close to an MVP level. We'll never know. 
the defense was probably better than the numbers they put up because the offense was not incapable of playing complementary football. But as you, these little things start to add up, you can see very quickly how you go from the 2021 team that probably could have won a Super Bowl to the 2022 team that has a wide gulf between where they were and where they needed to be to compete at that level. There's a lot of different moving parts here. If you aren't in the category of teams that can realistically win the Super Bowl in a given year, I would say you are either building toward it or you're coming out of a phase where you were recently in that category. If you're building toward that Super Bowl contending team category, you're trying to find the pieces that are going to get you there. Maybe you're a quarterback short. That's a big gulf for you to overcome. Maybe you've got your quarterback in place and you're just trying to find the right pieces to put around him. Maybe you're trying to find that right coordinator that gets your defense in line with you know, what is going to counter these high-powered modern offenses. If you're coming out of that phase, you're figuring out if you can reload and get back into that category quickly or if you need to take some more time to get some entirely new pieces, get out from under some bad contracts, and really tear it down. And sometimes, unfortunately, you have to tear it down, and that usually comes along with jettisoning some bad contracts and bringing in a bunch of young players and things like that. If you accept that definition of a rebuild, the Packers are rebuilding. This is a rebuilding year. In Well, for basically the past decade, from 2011, the year after they win the Super Bowl, to 2021, the Packers were in reload mode. They were at the peak there for most of those seasons. Outside of 2013, where Aaron Rodgers is injured, 2017, where Aaron Rodgers is injured again, and 2018, where everything kind of comes apart internally, they were in that teams that could realistically win a Super Bowl category just about every year. Even the 2019 team, where people say they were wild overachievers, which was true, or they were the worst 13-3 and football team in, in history, which does not matter at all. That is the most meaningless criticism you could throw at a team ever. They were on the doorstep of the Super Bowl. And sure, they got walloped by a 49ers team, but you know what could have happened in that playoff game? Say in the divisional round, Jimmy Garoppolo tears an ACL, or something happens where the 49ers come into that NFC championship game at less than full strength. The Packers win that game and they're in the Super Bowl. What are you going to sit there and say? Well, they're a bad team. They're in the Super Bowl. Yeah, they're in the Super Bowl. Maybe they get shellacked by the Chiefs. Maybe they don't. But if you're there, you're there. And that's where the Packers were. They, They were just in that retool sort of category. The last three years prior to you know Aaron Rodgers' departure, well, 2019 to 2021, not really the last three years, we're, we're a couple of years removed from that last super contending year anyway, they were big reload time. Post-2018, they didn't really have to do a big teardown on offense. The you, Just looking at their personnel moves, the only player they added that offseason after Mike McCarthy left town was Billy Turner on offense. The personnel moves said loud and clear that they didn't think that the people were the problem. They thought the coaching was the problem on offense. They just could contend with a new approach, and that's basically how things happened over the next few years. They didn't add a lot of pieces on offense. The evidence basically bore that out. I would have liked another pass catcher in that window, but nonetheless, they had the pieces in place to support an MVP caliber quarterback, mostly. Could have used a little bit more help, but the point still stands overall. They had a three or so year window with an MVP caliber quarterback and a good supporting cast. The defense, by and large, was good enough to win a Super Bowl, even if they weren't elite. It's pretty clear they are not in that window anymore. The Packers are rebuilding. The second question 
and perhaps a more important thing here is why does that word seem to bother people? I think there are a few reasons. First, it's hard to accept. I would have to imagine even within the, the an NFL building that you are not in that contending group. That's where everybody wants to be. That's where job security is. That's where long-term career prospects are. That's where money is. Every, everything is better when you're in that contending group. And if you're not there, it's tough to straight up admit it. And even personnel people will dance around this a little bit. Brian Gutekunst, I don't think, has faced this, has directly answered this, but he's been pretty clear that they needed to do some things differently. He surely understands the realities of going into a season with a roster as young as the Packers are. Why do you have a roster that young? Because you had to get rid of the old guys. And why did you have to get rid of them? Because they didn't fit with your vision of the team for the next three or four years. That's That is a rebuild. It's hard to accept that you're not in that contender group and that you've had to do these things. It's also hard to accept, I think mainly as fans, that this season is not going to really involve meaningful competition. If you accept that you're in a rebuilding year, you're saying, we're not going to have conversations about can the Packers make the playoffs this year. We're not going to have conversations about where they rank among the good teams in the NFC and whether or not they could take anybody down in the AFC. Like the conversation about whether or not the Packers could match up, say, with the Chiefs or the Bills or the Ravens is it's beyond academic at this point. It's not even worth having. It doesn't matter. They couldn't. And even if they could, their record at this point is is going to keep them from ever having to meaningfully consider that, except for, you know, we're going to face the Chiefs and then we'll, we'll get an actual answer to that question here in the near future. But it's hard as fans, I think, to accept that we're rebuilding and that means that the competition that we see on Sunday for 17 falls or 17 Sundays in a fall doesn't really matter other than draft compensation. And that's why you get tied up in some of the tanking stuff. It's just hard to accept sometimes that your team is just not that good yet. But I would argue that it is important to rebuild and it's important to know that you're rebuilding too. It's important to rebuild in the same way that it's important for a forest fire to happen in a forest every now and then. This is one of my favorite nature facts that forest fires are a, like a, a largely a natural phenomenon outside of some of the, the man-made stuff that we have now, but would happen regardless of human intervention, uh, whether the, whether we caused fires or not. Sooner or later, there's going to be some kind of fire in the forest, a lightning strike, something like that. And secondly, by and large, they tend to create good things for large forests. It burns out a lot of old growth. It lets new things grow. It releases a lot of useful nutrients and things like that into the ecosystem. It's helpful. And for your team to rebuild, sometimes you have to go through that painful, you know, fire process. You have to burn down some of the old stuff. It's also important to know that you're rebuilding too, because it's important, I think, in life and in sports to not lie to yourself about where you are. Having a good self-conception, an accurate self-conception is going to give you a lot stronger base to build off of long-term. And also it's going to help you be more realistic about your expectations, both for yourself and people around you. It would be silly for us to sit here and grade the Packers like they're a Super Bowl contender. That was part of, I mean, you don't care about this part of the job of being a podcaster, but part of the stress such as it is of, of, of covering the team like I do over the past three or four years is that if 
it, it gets annoying to grade them like we do when the expectation is that they're going to be contending for a Super Bowl because every game has to be measured that way. Did the Packers look like a Super Bowl contender this week? If so, can it continue? If not, why not? And what do they have to change to get to that level? Because when you've got Aaron Rodgers playing out of his mind during the the pandemic in 2020 or the post-pandemic year in 2021, those seasons are precious and rare. And everything is going to come down to whether or not they win the Super Bowl. And that's why on a cold night in January 2021, I'm sitting here staring at my podcast mic, unable to hit record because the Packers just lost to the Buccaneers and that realization is setting in that maybe they just squandered their last best shot with Aaron Rodgers. But now you're not grading them on that level. And if you are trying to grade them as though they should be Super Bowl contenders or they should be defeating these elite teams in the NFL, I'm sorry, you're just doing it wrong. You were incorrect about your assessment of this team. They they are not at that level right now, and they know that, and we should acknowledge that too. So acknowledging that a rebuild is happening allows you to shift your perspective. And I, if you've been listening to the podcast this year, that, that perspective shift has really happened, I think, in kind of a, a meta way for me over the past few weeks, just that we really have to have no expectations of anything going the Packers' way in terms of wins and losses the rest of the year. Everything is evaluated like preseason. We're talking about jobs for the future. We're talking about who's going to be here in a year or two years for the Packers based on their performance this year. We're talking about the guys who have a good bet to be here in 2025 or so, what they're building on right now and whether or not they are part of that picture. And that's an important conversation to have. It's admittedly frustrating that it's not the conversation we would like to be having. Rebuilding, again, is not fun, even if it is necessary, but having that perspective is good and important, too. I have a few questions here from listeners and readers kind of related to this, and then one that's just kind of fun here at the end that I got to dive deep on a random subject as well. Papa Rooster asks, or Papa Roo asks in our Discord server, if this is a rebuild, is Matt LaFleur the coach we give another year's three years to complete it? I don't have an answer to that specifically, but I would like to kind of maybe reorient your perspective around this. Justice Mosqueda and I talked about this kind of in an obtuse way on my recent appearance on his podcast, Intercepted. NFL head coach isn't just one job because not all head coaching gigs are the same. And that's something the Packers, I think, have to consider as they look to Matt LaFleur's future. You can have a head coach who comes in to change the culture of your franchise. You, have a, you can have a head coach that comes in to update your schemes and just get you modernized in that way. You can have a coach who's a rebuilder, who's going to see you through this process of coaching up young guys and helping you build the roster. A guy who just has to tweak a couple things maybe and, and just give you a slightly different look. Maybe you just want a guy who's just a different face. I'm not sure which of those roles the Packers job is in 2024, it's going to depend, I think, largely on what the Packers think they have in Matt LaFleur, or excuse me, in Jordan Love. But depending on what they need from from their head coach, it's possible that Matt LaFleur may just not be that guy. And that I think we need to also remember that doesn't mean he's a bad coach or that any guy who gets fired in the NFL is a bad coach. Sometimes you have a guy who just is not a good fit for where the franchise needs him to be 
at a particular time, and that's okay. Sometimes guys get fired because the timing isn't working out. The The example that Justice uh, used was Andy Reid in Philadelphia. Things had pretty clearly run their course for, Phil- for Andy Reid in Philadelphia. Whatever he was preaching was not working. He had some stuff going on off the field with with a with a son that was dealing with some some pretty serious issues off the field. He just needed a change of scenery, and both sides needed that for things to work. Things have gone well for the Philadelphia Eagles. They've won they won a Super Bowl with uh, with Doug Peterson, and now things seem to be going pretty well with Nick Sirianni. And of course, Andy Reid, th- things have gone quite well for him. Uh, he got to make that seamless transition from uh, Alex Smith to Patrick Mahomes. Uh, he won a front office battle with the, with the GM, John Dorsey there now has massive control over the roster there. things have gone pretty well for Andy Reid with a change of scenery too. Maybe things are just, it's possible that Matt LaFleur may not be the right fit for the Packers as they go into this next phase of whatever they are building here. But I think it's going to come down in large part to what they think they have in Jordan Love, and if Matt LaFleur is the guy to continue to shepherd that development. Old Packers fan asks, if Jordan Love's play against the Rams is his typical going forward, do the Packers decide he is the future? I don't know about that. I don't think based on one game or even the kind of game that he had, but I will say this. I think he showed some of the things that you you want from your young quarterback, uh, he executed the offense well. Um, there was some consistency from drive to drive with him, especially in the second half. His accuracy seemed to be better. Basically, you saw some step-forward type things from Jordan Love and the rest of the offense. Again, they got plenty of opportunities to win that game just because Brett Rippon was not the answer for the Rams in that game at all. And I think you you saw that confirmed with what the Rams did today. It it, it looks like they're, they're going to sign uh, Carson Wentz to you know, be one of their backup quarterbacks. And I think the, probably the presumed starter if Matthew Stafford's injury continues to linger. But all those caveats aside, I thought the offense did some good things down the stretch. They scored on three of their last four drives. They had a long clock-killing drive in there. Some good stuff. The deep ball is still floaty and weird. Uh, but there, I think overall, were some good things from Jordan Love in that game. And if he can build, let's put it this way, if he can build on the kind of performance that he had against the Rams, I think that's the sort of thing that the Packers sit up and take notice of, and probably the rest of us should too. Going to steal this question from uh, Wendell Ferreira, who I think is a an underrated Packers writer. Uh, he has put out some really good stuff over the past few years, especially this season. And he asked this hypothetical question as the headline of one of his pieces, uh, leading into an opportunity to talk about Christian Watson for him. Uh, but the the piece started with basically a rhetorical question of what is the Packers' biggest midseason need right now? I would say consistency at wide receiver is their biggest need. If they're, if you could fix one thing about this offense, I would just wave a magic wand of some sort and get more consistent performances from everybody in the receiver room. I don't think it's any one person that really needs to step up. They just need a, a higher floor for everyone in that position group a higher standard of expectation, a higher standard of execution. They just need more from their wide receivers. That is much easier said than done. I don't know how you fix it. Catching the ball more consistently is is probably a a nice step in that direction. But if if they could just improve that wide receiver just a little bit, I think that raises the floor for, for that room, obviously, and for the offense as a whole quite a bit. Related to that, 
Gabe's MSU 11 asks, can we do a deeper dive into Christian Watson? My amateur football eye says that he might just not be that good. Not bad, but not the franchise wide receiver we all hoped for. I feel like this offense is more digestible if you have the viewpoint that Watson is a meh wide receiver, maybe in the mold of a Marquez Valdez-Scantling. I like what he says here at the end here, that if you just look at the the expectations for the offense from the perspective that maybe Christian Watson isn't the answer, that might explain a lot about their offensive struggles and what we perceive to be their offensive struggles. Because if we look at the Packers' offense, through the lens that Christian Watson should be performing like he did during his ultra-hot streak last year, then yes, this offense is hugely disappointing. But if we look at it from the perspective that, well, maybe there still are some ongoing questions about who Christian Watson is as a player, well, that explains a lot. So who is Christian Watson as a player? What is he really? I would say, basically, Christian Watson has been as advertised thing is, it's not the advertising that the Packers are selling. And the more time that goes by, the more time that I there, the more I think that he was just simply overdrafted. Let's look back at one scouting report in particular. And I think this is pretty representative of where everyone else had him too. But Dane Brugler of The Athletic, I think, has some of the best scouting work out there. And he absolutely crushed it with his evaluation of Christian Watson. Strengths, basically, he said Watson is a big athlete. His main attribute is speed. He was productive in college. The consummate deep threat there. Weaknesses, he talked about how Watson is large but not particularly muscular. The phrase that he used was, quote, slender muscle tone. He also said that Watson has mediocre play strength and, quote, his medicals will be important after multiple surgeries to repair torn cartilage in his knee. He missed three games as a senior because of a hamstring injury, end quote. His bottom line on Watson was this, quote, overall, Watson is unpolished as a route runner and must improve his consistency at the catch point. But he is an intriguing size, speed athlete with explosiveness to win vertically. He projects as wide receiver four as a rookie with wide retriever two upside and offers kick return experience, end quote. So compare that scouting report to what we have seen from Watson so far. His strengths, basically exactly right. If there's anything that's true about Christian Watson today that we thought about him on draft day, he is a tall, fast athlete. You wonder a little bit about his speed at times this year, given coming off the hamstring injuries, he doesn't look quite as explosive. Still plenty fast, though. His weaknesses, too. Exactly right. He's big, but he doesn't necessarily play big. He's not super strong at the catch point, and he's basically always struggled with contested catches. I looked through all of his numbers just in the Pro Football Focus database dating back to his entire college career. Here's where he here's what he did on contested catches dating back to his freshman year at, um, at North Dakota State. In 2018, one for six on contested catches. In 2019, three of 12. In 2020, five of 16. And in 2021, he was three of five on contested catches. Overall, 12 of 39 on contested catch opportunities in college, small college as well. In 2021, Two, his rookie season in the NFL, he was 9 of 12 uncontested catches in 2023 so far, just 1 of 10, an overall total of 10 of, 20, 20, 10 of 22 uncontested catch opportunities. Looking back over the balance of his career, 2022 in terms of catches, or contested catches, was by far the outlier, his best year in terms of catching those contested balls. The injuries too, we've all seen it. 
He's been injured a lot. It was the defining story of his early rookie season. It was the defining story of this season so far as as far as his year goes. He's been hurt a lot, and when he hasn't been hurt, well, struggles at the catch point and stuff like that. The big question, I think, is whether or not it's a good idea to draft a guy with that scouting profile 34th overall. You're making a big bet on his athleticism outweighing those other attributes and concerns, And to be fair, we have seen other guys make it with athleticism and only athleticism. It comes down to expectations. The Packers took him 34th overall. And don't forget, traded 53 and 59 to get to 34. They got pick 53 in the Devontae Adams trade and also got pick 22, which turned out to be Quay Walker. So your trade there is basically Devontae Adams for Quay Walker and Christian Watson. Watson that year, the seventh wide receiver off the board. Guys who went in front of him were Drake London, Garrett Wilson, Jamison Williams, Chris Olave, Jahan Dotson, and Traylon Burks. Overall, pretty solid group ahead of him. Dotson and Burks seem to be the question marks there. Uh, Jamison Williams has not gotten things sorted out in his young NFL career to this point. But London, pretty good. Wilson, very good. Olave, very good, as we got to see earlier this season. Then you've got the wide receivers taken after Watson and before the pick where the Packers would have been. Wandale Robinson went 43rd. John Mechie went 44th. Tycon Thornton went at 50. George Pickens went at 52. And Alec Pierce went at 53. Pickens was a really popular pre-draft target, if you've forgotten already. Would have been, I think, a great fit for what the Packers need at wide receiver this season. A guy who's great in contested catch situations. Alec Pierce at 53, I think it would also have been a good fit. We talked about him being kind of in the vein of an Alan Lazard. Another big goon wide receiver for Matt LaFleur. Basically, the Watson pick comes down to a few things. Is it a good idea, again, to take a guy like Watson where they took him? Starting to think probably no. And even if you do think it's it's good pick, was Watson the right guy to take there? Has he improved on his college issues? I think the answer there has been no as well. He's been hurt a lot, and he struggles with the contested catches, does not play up to his size to this point. Then it comes down to how he compares to other guys the Packers conceivably could have had. I think you, you've got to for sure, for sure say Alec Pierce, uh, but also George Pickens I would group in there, considering he went just one pick ahead of where the Packers would have been had they stood pat and not traded up for Watson. Doesn't seem like it would have taken much to trade up enough to get George Pickens if you thought that you wanted him, whether or not that that would have been the pick um, becomes the question there. But Watson is going to draw comparisons to those guys. I think the overall mindset you need to be in is that Watson has basically been what was he what he was expected to be coming out of college. And whether or not that was a good idea to get a guy like that becomes a much bigger issue, maybe a little bit more ammunition if you are in the anti-Brian Gutekunst camp. Finally, a question that I've had a lot of fun researching and trying to answer, why don't the Packers Lambo leap anymore? Earth Daddy dropped this one in the Discord the other day after the Packers scored two touchdowns on Sunday and did not do a Lambo leap after either one of them. It's been an interesting trend. The Packers, as far as I've been able to tell, have not done a Lambo leap so far as I can have been able to determine this season. Why is that? There are a few reasons. The first and foremost one is that they just haven't scored many touchdowns at home. For one thing, they've only played four home games so far this year and have scored two touchdowns against the Saints, two against the Lions, one against the Vikings, and two against the Rams. That gives you seven opportunities for Lambeau leaps overall. That leads us into the second point. The situations have been bad for leaping. Their two touchdowns against the Saints were Jordan Love uh, running the ball in, 
They had to go for two immediately afterwards, so he didn't have much time to celebrate because he had to get back to the huddle and call a play. Then he got Romeo Dobbs' game-tying touchdown. He celebrated with his teammates. That becomes important here in a second. The Lions' touchdowns, Christian Watson scored a touchdown late in the game. They went for two after that one. Jordan Love scored on the ground again, and they went for two after that one as well. Had to huddle up. No time for Lambeau Leap there either. Vikings game. Uh, Romeo Dobbs scores a touchdown. The Packers are down 24-3 to at the time. He makes it 24-9 to technically, but then they, they score the PAT, so it becomes 24-10. to Celebrations there are generally muted. A lot of guys seem to consider it poor form to go for the Lambo leap when you are down big. Then the Rams touchdowns, Aaron Jones scores on the ground. He had a group celebration with his teammate, appeared to be a preordained planned celebration with his teammates for that one. Then Luke Musgrave scores a touchdown and points and flexes to the audience. He doesn't leap, but he would have had to go over the field goal net to get to the, um, I guess, Lambo leap area anyway. So of those seven home touchdowns, you've got three where they went for two right away, including two where they were down big anyway and may not have wanted to do the Lambo leap. You've got two other touchdowns where guys celebrated with teammates. You've got one where the Packers were just down big and one where Luke Musgrave just turned down an opportunity to leap. Really, that boils down to seven touchdowns with one opportunity for a a real Lambeau leap where a guy turned it down. On top of that, touchdown celebrations have been limited by rule. Aaron Jones actually spoke about this postgame. I didn't catch this. But an anonymous, well, not anonymous, anonymous, but a a Reddit commenter on a thread that I was reading pointed this out. I do lurk on Reddit from time to time. Uh, But he pointed out that that Jones actually spoke about why guys haven't been doing the Lambo Leap as much after saying that he noticed that Luke Musgrave didn't do a Lambo Leap. Here's what he had to say. Facts, I forgot to do a Leap. They they, uh, shorten our, our... Our window to celebrate so you know you you want to celebrate with your guys because they're the ones who helped you in but then you also want to go celebrate with the the fans because they're the ones who's bringing the energy all game so it's like it's hard and we got we've had some players get uh not get in trouble but they've gotten got on i guess that's how you say it um for taking too long uh because they they can just go ahead and kick that field goal if you're still on the field if you're still running behind it's a problem so uh, you know, you got to be quick with it. You got to you gotta choose pretty fast. So if he's referring to what I think he's referring to, in 2017, the NFL instituted a 40-second play clock after touchdowns. That was when they really relaxed the post-touchdown celebration rules. I don't remember if you rem- – I don't know if you remember the really hardcore no-fun league era, but prior to 2017, they really cracked down on celebrations. 2017, they said we're going to open it up a little bit more, but they also snuck in a 40-second play clock after a touchdown where there didn't used to be one. So as soon as you you score, it's just like you're getting ready to run another play. you got 40 seconds to get that PAT kicked. Guys got to be out of the end zone by the time they're, they're ready to kick that stuff. It severely limits the time that you have to celebrate. So unless you go for the leap absolutely right away, you don't you just don't have time to get to it, basically is what Jones is saying there. That is a problem if you are a Lambo Leap enthusiast. I would consider myself at least a a Lambo Leap tracker. Maybe we need to track a little bit more about, you know, who's doing Lambo Leaping and when. But that is why. There is basically a rule against celebrating too much, and you can either celebrate with the guys who helped get you there or go celebrate with the fans. And sometimes if you're, like, diving into the end zone or there's a big pileup, you really don't have a choice in the matter. So that's really why we haven't seen Lambo Leaps all that much this year. Hopefully the Packers just score more over the second half of the season 
and we won't have to worry about whether or not they're Lambo leaping because we just have so many so many opportunities for it that they're going to get three or four a game in anyway, whether the Packers choose to celebrate on their four or five other touchdowns with their teammates or not. Because the Packers, you know, over the second half of the season, they're really going to put things together here. Every every game is going to be like, you know, 50 to 60 points. So there's going to be plenty of chances to do Lambo leaps. I think it's just a perfect solution. Anyway, that's all I've got for you in this episode of Blue 58. I appreciate you tuning in. I would appreciate it even more if you would take a second and share this episode with someone you think would enjoy it. It's going to help more people find the show and get more people involved in this conversation you and I are having about the Green Bay Packers, which in turn is going to help all of us, me included, become smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We'll see you next time on Blue 58.